Hey friends, and welcome to this episode of the Canby Bible College Curiosity Project. I'm James, the Dean of Canby Bible College, pumped to have you join us. We are chatting with Dr. Leah Payne, who is a professor at George Fox University, as well as Portland Seminary. She's got a PhD from Vanderbilt University in church history. She's a published American church historian and a wealth of information on the power and the importance of understanding how church history has shaped us and can help us create a future that glorifies God for his benefit and the good of others. This is a fascinating conversation, which we touch on things ranging from Martin Luther to pop culture. Dr. Leah Payne is also the co-host of the Weird Religion podcast, which is amazing, and I highly encourage you to check that out. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Leah Payne of George Fox University. Dr. Leah Payne, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Curiosity Project. So grateful to have you be able to sit down with us. Appreciate you taking the time. This is Dr. Leah Payne. She is a professor of Christian Studies and Theology here at George Fox University, as well as Portland Seminary. Uh, your PhD is from Vanderbilt. It is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just give us a sense for kind of how you came into the role of the academy and what your passions are in serving the church in that way. Oh, wow. So I, I started graduate studies when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee with uh, my spouse who at the time was a musician. And uh, so I, I was working in the music business. I worked for a singer, songwriter, producer, multi-hyphenate man, a guy named Charlie Peacock, who was a wonderful boss. And um, and I was enjoying working in the music business, but there was something about um, the life of the mind that I was missing and so I applied to the only graduate program that I really knew of at the time and it was at Vanderbilt and uh, I started my master's program and then just fell in love with the academy and just the rhythms of life there and I basically have never left I've gone pro at being a student so and I know that a lot of your students have appreciated that. You're oh. very highly regarded inside of the classroom. But one of your many areas of expertise is in the area of church history. Mm-hmm. Um, I have studied church history a little bit just in the course of, you know, just Bible school kinds of things. It often feels like a, a kind of like, why is this class here? You know, aren't we supposed to be focused on reaching the next generation, not studying what happened 1,500 years mm-hmm. ago? Give us a sense for what really drew you to church history and why its value is still critical for the formation of leaders in ministry today. Oh, okay. So if we were having a longer conversation, I would throw a couple of questions back at you first. And I think one of the questions is um, we have to ask ourselves why we don't care about history or why we think that it's not important. Because that we're actually kind of peculiar in our moment in time because many of us have a sense of historylessness and a lot of American Protestants in particular don't intuit that looking to the past to illuminate the present is important and a lot of that has to do well there there are a lot of different reasons one of them has to do with the traditional Protestant interpretation of Martin Luther's idea of sola scriptura. Mm. So this idea that the Bible only is the foundation for the Christian life. If we just look at the scripture and understand it, then we've got everything we need. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of um, American Protestants in particular look to inter- 
look at the idea of the Bible as the foundation of Christian life and then think, okay, it's just the Bible directly to me. This is how God speaks directly to me. I would argue that a you can make a really strong case for a Pentecostal or charismatic interpretation of time and history um, that demands attention on the past. So if we take Jesus seriously at the end of Matthew, where he's, and when he says, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, and he sends his Holy Spirit to us in Acts, we have to think to ourselves, wow, God has been moving through the world in the years past when we think of the canon, of, you know, the scriptures being closed. Maybe I should be paying attention to what has gone on uh, prior. Now, another reason why I think a lot of Christians, um, American Protestants in particular, have a sense of historylessness just has to do with our American context. We are a young nation, and we're a nation that was founded by largely sticking it to the man, like the literal man, a king, right? And so we have a very, like, deep within our historical identity and our DNA is a a resistance to traditional forms of authority. So when these United States were being created, uh, they, they largely were rejecting a really important theological and philosophical idea, which was the divine right of kings, which said that authority was passed on through tradition, through bloodlines. And they said, nope, we're going to reject that, and then we're going to govern ourselves. And every so often, we're going to reconstitute that government, right? We're going to vote. And so when you think about a group of people that were founded on that principle, you can see how we're a group of people that are, that are a little more resistant to looking to the past to see who we are. But to your question about why it's important, I'll give one simple practical explanation in addition to the more highfalutin theological one I just gave, which is this. If you were to go to the doctor and you were to say, um, I, you know, I think I have such and such a disease, the doctor will ask you, what is your family history? So, especially with the big scary diseases, sure. for example, cancer or something like that. And uh, you, your personal health will be very enriched if you know your family history. And it's very wise for you to do that, right, um, in terms of preventative care. So if we look at the church now and we say, everything's going great, yes, no changes, no improvements needed, then maybe, <laughs> maybe you could argue you don't need to do that. But I look at the church, if we look at the church as a body, um, a living organism, we would be wise to do a family history to see, you know, what have we done in the past that has been to, if, if uh, been to the benefit of a particular group of people, um, and what has not. And so every, my approach in the classroom and also in my writing is a warts and all approach. I don't look at church history as an opportunity uh, to present students with saints who are very unrealistic uh, portraits of the Christian life. Um, and so when we look to the past, we can expect to see difficult things that make us feel uncomfortable, but we can pro also, at least it's been my experience, we can expect to see explanations for what's going on right now. Something that will make us go, oh, I see why we do any particular thing. Let me touch on that a little sure. bit further. You, your approach of this kind of warts and all when it comes to church history, um, there are warts in church history. There are places that when you look back, it makes you question what in the world was going on. And of course, it's always a little bit 
difficult to apply current day kind of mores and, and values backwards into time. Mm-hmm. But there's some things that we're like, well, that, that's wrong on any measure in any era. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about in your teaching of church history and trying to encourage a sense of a high view of the church or the institutional church throughout history that is a, um, that has its flaws? How can we hold that tension between understanding that not every aspect of church history reflects positively upon Christ or Christianity in general, and still trying to love the church as it stands today? That's a great question. And I think that my first response to that is we don't really have a choice. We have to go and look with honest eyes at the past to the best of our ability. Now, in my field, historical studies, people are always going back through data and reorganizing it in a way and telling different stories. So I think you can argue that, um, you know, the way that we see the past is always changing depending on who's telling the story. But um, in the information age that we live in, there, there may have been a time, there was a time, when you could actually keep difficult details from people. Um, but that is, we do not live in that time. Wikipedia exists. Social media exists. And so the first response I have is we have to do it, right? Because it's sort of like, oh, this is going to be a weird metaphor. What are the ages of your listeners? Oh, you know, younger, yes. Okay, yeah. So it's sort of like if you want to teach your children about the birds and the bees, if you want them to, they're going to know about it, right? That's just a fact. Wouldn't it be nice if they heard about it from a parent, right? So I think that that is kind of a good example of understanding the relationship between the Christian and the church, right? They're going to find out at some point how, you know, a a lot of details about the past. Um, I think that it's helpful for people who are trained in the discipline of history and also people who are trained in theological studies to help people understand the past. Um, And also, you know, I think that if we are honest about the past, we um, can see, we can understand a little bit more about our present, and we can also, it, it takes the scariness a little bit out of kind of these these larger than life characters. Um, so for example, I'm thinking of Martin Luther. Some people think of him, uh, especially Lutherans, so apologies to the Lutherans in your audience, but you know, some people think of Martin Luther as this purely heroic man. Um, it is disappointing to many of my students, especially if they are Lutheran, to read some of his, um, for example, a, a piece that he wrote called On the Jews and Their Lives, which yeah. is really anti-Jewish. Um, and it, it has been credited with setting German culture on a trajectory, or at least capitalizing um, on a trajectory that has had very tragic results. Um, I'm, you know, I'm talking, of course, about the Holocaust. So, if you, uh, you know, if a student were to, um, you know, come in with this very one-dimensional view of Martin Luther, he's a hero, and then all of a sudden be confronted by this really terrible piece of writing. Do they say he's a villain now, or is it possible to have a very nuanced perspective on someone? So I think it's really important to take these larger-than-life characters and put them in their historical context, try to see, be as honest as we can, and see as much as we can 
um, to understand them better, and then also to understand our own flaws. It's often been said that history is written about men and by men. <laughs> yes. It's often been said that has often been true. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, of course, there's so much throughout church history. I'm thinking especially of some of the, the earliest missionary endeavors were done by some very courageous women. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our own tradition, which is Foursquare, right. part of the broader Pentecostal tradition, um, that, that fell kind of outside of the mainstream for many years, in part because some of the key figures in its inception were women, uh, Catherine Coleman and Amy Simple McPherson and others. Help us as someone who has studied a lot of the lives of these women very deeply, what it is that we can learn when we look at church history through the eyes of those who are not talked about as much, about through the eyes of women. Oh, wow. Well, there's a really, um, so there, boy, you asked a great question. It's obviously something that I've been spending a lot of my time um, thinking about and writing about in the past. Yes, women and uh, the church and the story of women in the church is a very complex and for many women a very painful history. Um, You hit the nail on the head when you said that most writing on any subject related to church history has been done by men. The same could be said for biblical scholarship and a lot of that has to do with um, traditional complementarian ideas about the role of, of women in the church in general. So if anybody's going to be doing writing on behalf of the church, uh, for whether it be biblical studies or church history, it has been traditionally done by men. So what is it that we can gain by looking at the history of the church uh, through the eyes of women? Well, the fun part about that is, is that we both women and men can gain a lot from this exercise. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy thinking about when you look at the history of the church through the eyes of women is that it forces the question of how is authority established in a given church body, whether it be a denomination or a particular congregation. If a woman is in charge or if there are conflicts about a woman being in charge, which usually if one of them is happening, then the others happen as well, um, then really that's a question about authority, which is to say who has, and I'm going to use a really theoretical definition of authority, who has non-coercive power, which means who has power that is freely given by a congregation to a pastor. A pastor is not forcing anyone to do it. And for the vast majority of uh, history in in the church, men have been the ones who are primarily given non-coercive power. But we don't often think about why are we giving this person authority? Why are we giving a particular governing body authority over a congregation? That's a question, uh, not just a congregation, uh, a particular branch of uh, the church family tree. Uh, that's a conversation that's good for anyone at any time. We should be asking those conversations now as well as um, in the past. And I should say that the same is true for any group that has been not in what we might think of as the corridor of power. So um, in our particular moment in time, anyone who is not you know, a, a man, a white middle class man, you know, of European descent. Um, So all that to say that there's a lot of different ways of getting at those kinds of questions 
um, asking through the eyes of women, people of color, um, people outside of the traditional middle class norms. We can gain a lot by looking at those. Yeah. Um, let's say I was really interested in learning a little bit more about church history, but I don't have the luxury of sure. being able to sit in one of your classes. Is there a, a, a useful introductory text or someplace that I can go just to begin scratching the surface of this area? Oh my goodness. There are a lot of texts that are helpful and valuable. I'm an American church historian, so I tend to see through those eyes. One of my, but I'll, I'll take a crack at kind of an overarching church history. There's a, um, I think it's called The Rise of Christianity. I could be wrong about the title, but uh, the authors are Irvin and Sundquist, and it is a an approach to the history of the Christian movement that is global from the outset. So what I really like about that is that they look at the early, the earliest versions of Christianity. They try to be as globally minded as possible. So they are talking about the Middle East, which is uh, hopefully is obvious to your listeners. That's the origins of <laughs> the Christian. Um, movement but then they also are looking at places like what we now know um, as Turkey or Germany or um, China and so um, I really like that that series or the I think it's a two volume um, series uh, Irvin and Sunquist uh, another one that I really like um, that's a great kind of intro to just thinking historically and thinking from the perspective of an evangelical is Mark Knoll's Turning Points. Um, that one I've used with undergrads as well as, I, I actually, I can't remember if I've assigned it to seminarians, but the, the approach of Turning Points is Mark Knoll, who's an American religious historian and a really well-regarded evangelical, um, he is, it, he takes the approach of looking throughout time or throughout the history of the Christian movement and saying or asking the question what's going on in points of conflict so each chapter is a turning point now historians might argue about like the particular ones that he chooses but it's I think it's a really helpful introduction just to thinking about what are we doing when we're studying the history of Christianity and to your point about some of the the warts and all approach we can learn a lot from the conflicts. It's like, you know, the history, the, the, the church, the metaphor that the scriptures use for the church oftentimes is the bride of Christ. And I think a marriage metaphor is perfect in that regard because as anyone who's been married for any length of time, and I've been married for almost 18 years now, um, you learn a lot through an argument. So you learn a lot about who you are and what you value. So actually looking at points of conflict, I don't see that as a downside at all. I actually see that as a way of teasing out what's actually at stake in any particular era of Christianity. Let's say I was a young student passionate about ministry, wanting to plant a church or serve in a church or make a difference for what the future of Christianity can be. What recommendations would you give me, knowing what you know about church history, for someone who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of the past? Oh my gosh, what a great question. Well, first off, I think that's a wonderful question that anyone should ask before starting any kind of new endeavor right and you and i because we come from the foursquare church one of our hallmarks our trademarks is a very entrepreneurial approach to christianity 
And that has both pros and cons, right? I think anybody who's been in, in the movement that you and I grew up in, um, well, actually, I don't know, did you grow up in the mm, I only came to Foursquare 15 years ago. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, well, you're such a young guy. I'll just say you grew up in it too. Um, I was raised in it, and um, I've seen pros and cons. So what would I, I'll speak directly to the movement that we, we have been involved in. And these are the things that you can gain from the past as a church planter. One thing is that the founder um, of our movement, Amy Semple McPherson, she was a genius on many levels, I am convinced. Um, One of the things that she was particularly good at was capitalizing on whatever was going on in culture at a particular time. She was a woman who was just very much in her time. In fact, and she was also ahead of it. <laughs> so a lot of people will ask me, because I'm an expert on Amy Semple McPherson, what would she be doing now, right? And then they usually say something like, would she be doing TV evangelism? And I usually say no, because that's so a little bit passe now, right? Like she would be so far ahead of it. She would have adopted Twitter before, you know, our president. Quintessential early adopter. Yeah, she yeah. was an early adopter. She would have probably been like, if I had to guess, she would probably be like in Silicon Valley working with some weird startup, you know, creating something that we haven't even heard of yet. So she was so, um, she was of her time and also ahead of it. That is something that I've noticed it, um, that church planters who are thriving right now in the Foursquare movement, they seem to intuit that. Whether or not they know that that is their history, I'm not sure. But there are, um, you know, sort of like the best of, the people who are able to create sustainable versions um, of church plants seem to intuit that. Now that can look a lot of different ways because another thing about her is that she was a revivalist, which revivalists, revivalists go back a long ways in um, American history. They predate the Republic. Um, And one of the hallmarks of a revivalist is they tend to measure the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of how many people have come into the church building for a given service. So they measure it by attendance, right? Which, um, on the one hand, it can be very exciting if your church is growing, but it can be very discouraging if your church is not growing. And many people, smarter people than me, have critiqued that idea that the Holy Spirit, we only discern whether or not the Holy Spirit is moving if there's a lot of people in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up watching my dad kick himself if you know this Easter wasn't as big as last Easter or something like that. So that's something for church planners to keep in mind, especially given our current cultural setting where churches just aren't growing as fast as they used to. We are not growing mega churches at the rate that, that uh, we were growing them in, say, the 1990s when you had, um, it seemed like, a mega church in every city, you know? So we uh, we need to change our expectations about that and also recognize within ourselves that there's this part of us that will measure our success in this um, traditional revivalist way. And then last, and um, I'm not the first person in Foursquare to notice this, um, but Amy Semple McPherson was known as a workaholic, uh, to put it mildly, and that DNA, I think, continues to exist in the Foursquare tradition. That's especially hard on people who are starting something new because if you've ever started anything new, um, you know that it takes so much work and it you're pouring your heart and your soul into it. And in order for pastors 
to thrive in the future. They need rest, they need recuperation. Um, and so it's important to note that if you're a church planter, especially in this movement, and you're working really, really hard, you're following in the footsteps of many people who've gone before. And that's not, that part is um, hard on pastors and it's just something to be aware of. Absolutely. I appreciate you mentioning how Amy was so in tune with the culture that was around her. I know that one of your other passions is the intersection between Christianity and pop culture. Yes. Help us help us understand and and shout out to the Weird Religion podcast, <laughs> yes. which you host with a colleague of yours that's dedicated to you know exploring that intersection. Yes. Help us, um, boy. We've got just a little bit of time, but I'm interested in hearing. Help us give a give a defense for the value for the culturally engaged, pop cultural aware Christian. Why does that make a difference? Well, okay, I'll give one disclaimer. I don't advocate that everyone in the world needs to be pop culture savvy and be, you know, exegeting our particular moment in time through Amazon or Netflix binging. Um, I'll, I'll just say this, I really enjoy pop culture. I think that does have to do with my Foursquare heritage because it is a movement that has been perpetually interested in the intersection of Christianity and culture. So I don't actually think that everyone ought to be uh, usually the argument is made, and it, it comes from um, the Mars Hill argument, right, from Acts, which is you should be able to speak in the language of whatever culture sure. you're in. Mm-hmm. I am not convinced that that's for everyone at all. That's something that I enjoy doing, and it is um, something that's just been within me since I was a little kid. I just loved movies. I've loved TV. I've loved books. And so that's something that I do because I like it, and that I have um, a, I've been given a platform to talk about it, and so I hope that it's something that makes, you know, the Christian life intelligible to other people, but I don't advocate that for everyone. I think this is, if there's any takeaway from this, it is, whatever weird thing it is that God has given you, that you enjoy doing, you should pursue it, you know, as long as it's not going against the commands of God or something like that. You know, pursue it and see what comes of it. And and you'll be surprised at how God can use that in your life. This is a tricky subject. I grew up in a more kind of fundamentalism, legalistic sure. kind of thing. And so there's birdie, there's hard and bright lines around the things you could watch and what you couldn't watch. And of course, the whole Christian subculture erupted around Christian music, Christian yes. movies, Christian bookstores as an alternative to the bad culture that was out there. Yes. Yes. Can you give any sort of wise guidelines for a Christian who wants to discerningly engage pop culture? Oh, that's a great question. Well, that's a, at first I would say that that is always going to be complex, right? If we had figured out holiness um, years before, then, you know, like ev- that is the task of every Christian in any age is to see who am I as a Christian and what does it mean to follow Christ faithfully in my moment in time? So it's hard. It will always be hard. That's the first thing. The second is I like to look to the past and a really helpful lens, I think, of discernment that comes from the Wesleyan tradition, which the Pentecostal movement is deeply indebted to the, the Wesleyan tradition, is uh, Wesley's quadrilateral. So Wesley was um, also in an era, alive in an era of tremendous transition when um, England, he was an Englishman, was moving from a an industrial or a an agricultural uh, society to an industrial one. There was lots of tech, 
big tech boom, which doesn't seem like tech booms like compared to our age, but there's some similarities there. And there's a lot of questions about what it meant to be a Christian in that era. And he had this idea, which was you, uh, you used a four-pronged approach. One was scripture, and scripture he believed should be heavily weighted. So the scripture, he used the illustration of a wind chime. The, the scripture is the clacker, and the other three um, components are the chimes, right? So scripture, what does the scripture say? So is there something in what I am consuming media-wise that is like directly counter to scripture? That's a question that you can ask yourself. Then um, the next is tradition. What does what have Christians in the past said about that? Fortunately, we're like you know a couple millennia in. We've got a lot of helpful resources. Then reason. God gave you a mind. Think about it for a second, right? And then finally, experience, both personally and corporately. Wesley believed in radical experiences with the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit saying to me in this moment? And I think that if we are constantly wrestling through the the times that we live in with the scriptures, with the saints of the past, with our reason, and with um, our experience of the Holy Spirit, I think we can trust that God will faithfully guide us. I love the idea behind Wesleyan quadrilateralism um, of holding, you know, scripture as the primary thing there, but then supplementing it through, you know, tradition, reason, and experience. I think um, that the modern world is very complex, and that um, I think about Romans 13, where there was another tension between what was culturally appropriate and those who decided to imbibe were not to despise those who didn't, and those who didn't were not to judge those who decided to do it. And holding that tension, I think, is a really critical part of what it means to express love to one another. Um, So thank you for that idea. Uh, Let's close. Any final words of wisdom that you would give to young leaders wanting to make a difference for Jesus? Oh, wow. Final words of wisdom. Well, don't give up. yeah, don't give up, have friends, get some sleep, eat well, have hobbies, and stay in touch with me. I'd love to hear from anybody. Awesome. Dr. Leah Payne, thank you so much thank for you. spending time with us. Thank you so much, James. Really appreciate I'm it. I'm a big fan of yours. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Canby Bible College Curiosity Project with Dr. Leah Payne. Hope you found that to be very helpful. A couple of follow-up notes. One, check out her podcast, Weird Religion. That's great. It's the intersection of pop culture and spirituality. Lots of fun things happening there. As well as check out CanbyBibleCollege.org. We've got classes launching this fall that will increase your capacity to love and lead like Jesus. And bonus... If you're pumped on church history now, because who wouldn't be? We've got a church history course uh, on Tuesday nights that will be a real benefit for you. Scratch that. That's Thursday nights starting in the end of August. Hope you're having a great day. Remember, love you guys, but Jesus loves you more.